0: Hi everyone, welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hilliard. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts
1: are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. Episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition,
0: entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at
1: The MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at DJ So let's get to it. Hey, everyone, welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to episode 224 of The My Fit Podcast. This week on the show, I have Dr. Dan Dworkis. Dr. Dan is a clinical assistant professor of emergency medicine at USC and a board-certified emergency medicine physician at Los Angeles County Medical Center. His incredible book titled The Emergency Mind is designed to take readers into the minds of doctors who run resuscitation rooms and treat the ill and the injured to teach you how to perform when the pressure is on. Dan's expertise in the emergency room has carried over into places like the military, professional boardrooms, and athletic realms, where your mental state is the ultimate key to your success. I was really excited to have Dan on the show today because he brought a really unique um side to mindset. It was a unique intersection of the medical field and high-pressure situations and mindset. And I'd never read a book or talked to anybody that combined those two areas. And so I was really stoked to hear what he had to say about all things mindset and high pressure. Some of the first topics we got into were discussing what is an emergency. Obviously, he works in the emergency room. His book is titled The Emergency Mind. So we had to lay or set the table a little bit for what is considered an emergency. And actually, it's a really deep uh, philosophical question to ask yourself when things might seem to be chaotic in your life. Dr. Dan likes to lean on that as something that we can all kind of ask ourselves is, is this really an emergency? After that, we dove into the idea of staying calm under chaos and how that skill is the key to being a a successful ER doctor. Then We talked about asking calibrated questions under stress. We talked about the practice and discipline of suboptimal keywords suboptimal. I found this to be a really great aha moment. Then we talked about visualization tools to help under high pressure situations what it means to commit to never suffering routines and rituals before and after an intense shift and gaining a greater perspective on life after working in the ER dan has seen everything and just as the you could imagine go ahead and 10x that dan is in a, uh, a hospital that's in a rough area right outside of right outside of LA and he has seen a lot of just uh, horrific things. And he's learned a lot along the way. And he's a man that is full of wisdom. I was just so happy to pick his brain a little bit, um, and try to live a day in his life uh, as much or as close as we could. And hopefully you guys can start to understand some of the things that he sees and some of the tools that help him get through, uh, what could be a rough shift. If you guys enjoyed the show, be sure to leave a rating review and share it onto your social medias. Your feedback helps the show grow tremendously and helps to bring on more amazing guests like Dan. Let's go. The MyFit Podcast is brought to you by Element. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. With none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, and no BS. Healthy hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. And it makes sense. You lose both water and sodium when you sweat. So both need to be replaced to prevent things like muscle cramps, headaches, and energy dips. There are several flavors to choose from. My favorite is the citrus salt, which is how I start every single day. And as listeners of the MyFit podcast, you can now receive a free element sample pack with any order by using the link www.drinkelement.com forward slash MyFit. Again that's www.drinklmnt.com forward slash M-I-F-I-T. Go get yours now. And welcome to the show, man. Super happy to have you here today. Just read your book and just really excited for the conversation. Oh, thanks so much, man. I appreciate you inviting me on. This will be my first interview with an ER doctor, and I've spent some time <laughs> in my life. I've had some injuries, some bangs and bruises, and so I've spent some time there personally, but a lot of my listeners, <laughs> I'm going to guess that they haven't, and they, and they don't maybe know a lot of ER doctors. And I think before we get into some of the logistical pieces, some of the mindset pieces that I just love, I think a great place to start first is paint us a picture of what is a day, an hour, a half hour? What Give us a glimpse of what it is like to be Dan, the medical man in the ER room. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm
0: mostly I'm mostly glad when folks don't come into the ER, right? Unless you need to, and you're avoiding it, it's always a tough balance in there. Um, emergency medicine is really a bunch of different things wrapped up together, and in the in the states, in particular, we sort of think of ourselves as an amalgamation of two things: we are uh, public health for the community, and we are experts in high performance resuscitation. And these are two very, very different missions. And, and I think it's really the, the smashing together of those that makes our service so unique, you know, it, just to take a quick historical perspective, like we, you know, emergency medicine didn't exist maybe 60, 70 years ago. I forget what the number is off the top of my head. You know, it was just sort of the doctors that weren't doing anything else that would show up and kind of treat whoever came in. And it took a while for that to become, Hey, this is a real thing that we need to focus on and 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 direct science and energy to, and and train people how to do it's its own set. um, so you look at those two missions and, and you know who are we? We're always available. We're always on, right? We never say no. We're always available. It doesn't matter if you need a pair of socks or if you have been stabbed in the heart, we are there for you to try to fix this problem. And that's probably what drew me to it initially is that we never say no. We try to fix problems. And I, I'm somebody that loves trying to fix problems. I get a lot out of that. And everybody that works around me also gets a lot out of that. We, we try to solve things whenever we can um, and to make the world better At the end of the shift than it was at the beginning of the shift in whatever small way we're able to do that so uh a lot of what you see on like tvs or movies about emergencies like yeah a lot of that happens right these high pressure resuscitations and i think we're going to drift into some of that to talk about that for sure today but what's actually interesting is that or one of the things that's interesting is that probably very little of what we do during a given shift is really an emergency Right. A lot of it is interesting decision making. It's important. It's urgent even, but it's not really a real emergency. And so we we tend to think about as like a baseline thesis that like an emergency itself is not just a worse version of a bad thing. It's actually qualitatively different. Right. You hit a bifurcation point at some point and then it becomes bad, bad, much more bad. Like Oh man, dumpster fire. Oh, okay. Now we're in an emergency zone. And it's just a different thing. So we look at these characteristics of what is it that defines an emergency, right? So we have, and some of them I mentioned in the book and then actually we've sort of grown this definition since writing that, right? But we talk about uh, pressure, uncertainty, impact, right? All these things that combine together. So there's a, a gap between the resources you have and what you need. You don't understand a lot of what's going on and it's life or limb or some serious catastrophe if something misses. And then we add on to that complexity and liminality, which is a really cool world that that is not all that common, right? So complexity, we we talk about that it's not just a complicated system. It's a complex system. There's interactions between multiple parts that make it really difficult to break down and predict. And we see that clinically a lot when we are um, working in a particular circumstance. Like you have a patient that comes in who, uh, what's a good example at the top of my head, um, really, really bad uh, pneumonia right? An infection in the lungs. So this person is really struggling to breathe, but also they're fighting this overwhelming infection. And so their blood pressure is super low, right? So you need to really fix that. So usually if somebody's blood pressure is low, you give them fluid, IV fluid to bump their blood pressure back up. But if they already have, let's say they have a little bit of a heart problem too. They have some heart problems and some lung problems. That fluid is likely going to back up into their lungs and make it even harder for them to breathe. So now all of a sudden you have second order effects of your actions that are causing these feedback loops that are quite complicated and require you to really sort of attempt to peer into the future, juggle different potential possibilities and thread the needle between these different lines of a complex system. And then the last part that really makes it, depending on the day, like special or terrible is is liminality, right? Which is the sense that you've crossed over into a liminal space. You have gone from something to something qualitatively different and there's no way out but through, right? You can't just stop. And a great example of this is, um, you know, <laughs> once you have taken, once you're flying a plane and you've taken off, you eventually have to land. There's no other way. You can't fly forever, and you can't just disappear into space. You have to land the plane. You have to solve the problem of how to land at some point. So in emergencies, you get into these spaces. Let's say I'm going to put a breathing tube down for somebody. I'm going to give them medicines that is going to stop them from breathing themselves. And Now I'm in one of those spaces. I got to land the plane and there's some asterisks to that which we can get into or not but the point is you get into these spaces where you got to figure your way through it and that's that's intense that can be amazing that can be incredibly hard and so a lot of what i do over the course of the day is look at a bunch of things decide which ones the real emergencies are shuffle resources and go full bore into those and when i'm in those then i'm dealing with these really complex rapidly adapting systems that have liminality and uncertainty and all sorts of stuff. That's a long rambly answer, but it paints a bit of a picture about what's going on.
1: And there's a lot of blood and screaming and stuff too. (laughs) I love it. I think it's a great starting place. Walk me through, Dan. I can only imagine some of this stuff. Walk me through what is it like when you walk into one room and it's that blood and screaming another room mm. it's uh you know severe tummy ache another room everything is very very mm. different from room to room yeah. i can only try to put myself in your shoes man i can only imagine trying to flip the switch from one room to the next walk me through what is that like yeah i mean
0: i it would be wonderful if everybody came with a very clear label in terms of you know what what the actual issue was right and it's uh <laughs> you know and you come in with a card that's like i'm a level one or i'm a level Ah, oh that'd be that'd be amazing because then you could really rapidly affect your systems change but um but you don't know right and and it's really the uncertainty that that makes it quite uh quite challenging and sometimes you don't know because you just don't know and nobody knows right sometimes you don't know because the person's acting a particular way because of something that doesn't have anything to do with it right they're screaming because um they sprained their ankle but they're also coming down from methamphetamines so you know that person is maybe screaming louder than the very stoic um gentleman the other day in his uh in his 90s who had dislocated his shoulder and he was one of the calmest most stoic and strongest humans that i'd ever met and it was incredibly hard to put his shoulder back in and he just sat there looking at you the whole time where you you know you're tugging on his dislocated shoulder he was very polite you know and the person next to him was screaming profusely so so you have these like sort of like first impressions and then you have to pretty rapidly um, understand how to cut through stuff so you apply all these um you know uh, heuristics and pattern matching and sometimes a second order tier of looking for cognitive biases to make sure you're not drifting but it's a challenge um and one of the big ways that we learn how to do that, um, let me put it this way, if you were to drop even a relatively skilled medical person into an ER without ER training, um, people tend to hyper-focus on one task, on the thing in front of them. <clears throat> and whoever shows up in front of them, they go for that person and they dig into that person because that's more comfortable. We like things in series. We like one and then another. When you're parallel processing, which is what we spend a lot of time doing, um, you really have to practice that skill set, right? And so one of the ways that we do that is is applying graduated responsibility and graduated pressure to our trainees. So at the beginning, you will just work on one person and a more senior person will shuffle and look at the field and be like, I want you to go in a room three and see that person. And you go in there and you do that, right? Then when you've had a little more skill, we give you an array of five or six rooms and we're there with you and we watch you as you're making the decisions about how to shuffle and we sort of guide you with that. And then as you get higher up in the ranks, you're sort of doing a lot of that yourself. And so, um, uh, you know, last night, for example, I worked in a space, um, or actually it wasn't last night. It was fairly close, worked in a space where we had, I was the head doctor for, um, an area that has about 40 beds, uh, a team of four doctors, maybe 20 nurses and, an internal waiting room, and that's some small section of the of the emergency department that I work at. So there's constant inflows, and you're you're always doing this like uh, rapid reallocation of resources.
1: Very dynamic problem set. I can imagine that also. There's not a lot of you know. In your book, you talk a lot about timing is a big aspect of it too. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you got to make a lot of the book is about decision making and sure. and can can you make decisions fast? Again, walk me through for the rookies out there that don't understand how, how much time do you have, Dan? Between um, you hearing about the car mm-hmm. accident, the, the the victims of the car accident, to them being right in front of you, how much time do you have? And what does that process look like? Of yeah. I got to get ready to go. I got to make it my first decision. That's a great. That's
0: a great question. So. Um, to answer that, uh, we're really going to start here talking about like packages of actions and packages and, and, uh, programs almost. So, um, there's a lot of answers to that. So sometimes you get great call in, right? You have a paramedics that are amazing and they are like, Hey, we're, we're working this problem set. We're coming in in about six minutes. Here's my first impression. Here's what we've done. Amazing. Okay. Then you have a couple minutes to, spin up the team, spin up the resources, get the room ready. And if you have that warning, and it's a relatively sick sounding person coming in, um, then you are going to spend a bunch of time together uh, coalescing a team and spinning them up. And, and what that looks like, everybody gets in a room, people have their sort of predefined automatic roles. So if you are a... uh PGY-2, post-grad year two, you're sort of partway through your training, you know that your default position is at the, you know, head of the bed or the right side of the head, depending. If you're a senior, you know your position is at the foot because that gives you field control and view of the whole room. If you're a um you know, respiratory therapist, you know, your, your default position is somewhere. So people start self-assembling as the team starts coming in because we've trained the sort of default move, but then we have a moment where we gather everybody together and we say, all right, all right, here's what we know. Here's what our roles are going to be. Here's a problem that I anticipate and here's how we might solve it. So if we all have to swing left, get it in your head, we might all have to swing left and you sort of prime the pump and get everybody ready for that. Sometimes when you're doing that, uh, exactly what you expect to come in comes in and you have spun up your team for it. Sometimes you've spun up your team for something that doesn't have anything to do with the reality that you face and you pivot on the fly. But so there's, there's a sense of, all right, we've got a few minutes. What are the most important things that we do? Well, we make sure we know who everybody is and we make sure that we identify any incoming problem sets that we might really have trouble with, right? So, hey, we think this person's been stabbed. Their blood pressure is really low. Ah, geez, we're really running out of blood. So we're going to have to be very parsimonious about how we do this. Okay. Let's make sure that we understand that and get it right the first time when it goes in. Or, Hey, we have two cases coming in, or we have a case coming in and this is a pretty realistic scenario. We have a case coming in and we think there's a second case coming in after that. Mm. All right, great. The game plan is going to be, we're going to start here when we hear that second one in you you and you are going to peel off and form the B team and you're going to go after that i'm going to sweep to find you in a few minutes and you're sort of like you know navigating the future we also have moments um which are what you'd call zero start events right or starting from zero events where uh somebody shows up and they walk in the front door and they have been shot in the chest and they are bleeding and you go and you get no warning whatsoever their friends throw them out the side of a car or um They, you know, collapse having a heart attack in the walkway or, you know, you just never know. Uh, And these zero start events are really a different set of challenges, right? And that's when we get back to packages and programs, because the idea of where is the default position to stand relies on a pretty sophisticated understanding of how you resuscitate somebody, right? You have general operating principles that say control the airway. Make sure the senior person has view of everything, and have a backup person for the junior. Okay, those pretty good guiding principles, right? A totally different problem is there's a person on the ground, and you're the first one there. What do you do, right? And so we train for that eventuality also. And I, you know, I have responded to things on airplanes. I ran a cardiac arrest in a supercuts once. You know, I, like all sorts of things that that you just don't necessarily think about, but you have to prepare to be the first one on. And to sort of build a team dynamically as you're as you're operating you can imagine how different that would be if you're you know um in business or in the sports world right it's like starting an inning and having just the pitcher show up and start pitching and then you're like all right well i don't know i guess we should bring a catcher in hey can you can you catch a ball great get over here oh can you play first base amazing and you just sort of like and the other teams are already up and batting and you don't know right um so it's it's a dynamic problem set, but we train that also through a bunch of drills and simulations. Um, and that's, a, that's a really hard
1: problem set to zero star like that. I can imagine. It sounds like communication is super mm. vital in your world. And you talk about it in your books, I'd love to hear one of the things that you talked about, and I, I think this is just brilliant, is the idea of using the word suboptimal. You say <laughs> high quality responses to errors and bad outcomes move past anger and frustration and use a three-step approach. Accept the issue, rapidly pivot yourself and your team to a new reality, and then learn from the event to evolve improvements for future cases. Before we kind of get into the three-step process, mm-hmm. I love the word suboptimal. It really just yeah, kind of man. calms things down. And it could be very, very suboptimal. We could have death near, but it's, it's, just, it's just suboptimal. Walk me through that. Um, I love suboptimal because And I've often
0: thought about getting that as a tattoo actually, but I I love suboptimal because it's just, uh, understated and ridiculous enough to blow off some of the pressure, right? And you have to have bad things happen. Sometimes really bad things happen and sometimes like outrageously bad things happen. And you have to, uh, if you're leading a team, you can't just pretend they're not happening because you lose the team, right? They think you're some sort of a Pollyanna off in your own world. Hey, you know, everything's great. No, actually, not. This person's on fire. Right. And then if you get completely down that end where you're like, oh my God, this person's on fire and you're shouting and waving your arms, it does nothing either. So you have to find something that walks this middle ground that says, hey, I know this is bad and we're going to keep pressing forward anyway. Um, And I love suboptimal because it's understated and it does that. You know, I, I remember being in situations where. People are just absolutely near death, and you know you open a kit and it doesn't have any of the tools that it should in it and you, everybody's just looking around like, "What are we doing?" And the answer is you just say something like, "Oh, okay, suboptimal, let's get the next kit or give me that thing, let's go for it right and it, it's this nice reset pause that sort of gets in there. Um, I have this memory of we're uh we're midway through placing a breathing tube in somebody we have Put the medicines in that stops them from breathing, Uh, but we have not yet succeeded at getting the breathing tube in. Very dynamic liminal space moment. And my incredible charge nurse walks in the back of the room and goes, Hey, I just want you to know the power is going to go out in a minute. We don't know for how long, and we're not really sure what's going to happen. Also, there's incoming uh, multiple gunshot wounds. Okay, like I'm spinning up rooms three and four. I'll be back in a minute. So, You know you can imagine like all right there's multiple incoming and the power is about to go out so if the power goes out the ventilator we're about to put this person on might or might not work depends on exactly how the power goes out right we have backup systems but no system even backup systems is perfect and i don't know what's about to happen um lots of things lots of things can happen (laughs) Many, (laughs) many of them are quite bad so uh you know my my very skilled junior doctor looks up at me goes what are we going to do and i'm like yeah no power multiple gunshot wounds yeah that's pretty suboptimal and everybody in the room just chuckles for a second i'm like let's let's get this breathing tube in right like let's tackle this and we go back and put the breathing tube in and we take care of the gunshot wounds and the power goes out but we fix that too eventually and um you know it worked out and even if it even if it didn't work out perfectly we were able to keep moving forward because that's what it's about right it's not about nailing everything perfectly all the time It's about doing the best that you can with what you have, delivering the highest skill set possible in this moment, given your constraints and setting up so that tomorrow you can deliver more than you could today. Mm -hmm. That's success. That's the best version of success that we can put together, even though it is suboptimal.
1: Yeah, I'm going to borrow the suboptimal. I think it works well, not only in the ER, but just in everyday life. Mm-hmm. And it also too creates this, you're not going to say it like, this is suboptimal. You're going to say it like, <laughs> hey guys, this is suboptimal. And there's a phrase that the Navy SEALs say that calm is contagious and you're leading mm. doctors. Yeah. And, and so if you want to create a calm culture, it first needs to to start from you um another uh, you can that, always make it worse that's for sure yeah. that's right you talk a lot about too it just kind of this dovetails into the questions and asking better questions mm-hmm. i'm such a big fan of this obviously being a podcaster asking better questions leads <laughs> to better better answers and so in the book you say or maybe it's a, a a tweet that the leaders ask what does my team need and you say, great leaders ask what can i do right now with what i have to help my team move forward. And you're talking about being very present focused and asking sure. questions like cuz what you could do when that when that nurse came in and said, you know, "Well, why is it going out?" and what 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 blah what? Blah, 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 blah. It's like, "We don't have time to go through exactly. some of these." Answers. Talk to me about the importance of questions. What questions work really well for you? Yeah, that's that is um that is a good question. Sorry, I was trying to <laughs> I was trying to find a
0: way to not say that, but it is a good question. Uh so I think that's a work in progress and something I'm actively learning and and stealing from other folks because I I think that um you know sometimes you, th- you think about questions like the way a questions for leaders are like how tools are for a craftsman in a lot of ways right you look at the chisels that somebody's worked with their whole life they've honed them they've shaped them they've made them fit to themselves and if I'm another craftsman, I can borrow those chisels and learn from them and be like, oh, why, why did you put this here? What am I going to do differently in there? And I think that's something I love so much is borrowing and adapting questions from other from other groups. Um, so the questions that I love are the ones that do things like rapidly accept reality and push the team forward, right? It's so easy to get into spaces where our questions are reactive or victimizing or I'm not sure that's the right word, but acting as a victim, I guess, is what I meant. Mm -hmm. Um, Or mostly non-productive, uh, because things suck sometimes, right? And in or out of the ER, things just suck sometimes, and it's tempting to like go down that road of like, why does this suck so much? But in you know, it's probably not the right road to go down most of the time. So the question for me is, how do we use questions to move us into spaces that actually make differences? that's my first test of truth, right? And that's sort of the general speaking test of all truth in the ER is, does it make the world better? Okay, great. Then you're probably chasing the right set of directions. And we have some, some operating procedures under and around that, which is, is it something I can accomplish right now? You know, what is the thing in the way of me doing this? Um, what is the emergency I'm likely to miss right now, right? What do I not understand? And those negatively framed questions are often more powerful because, uh, there tends to be a innate dislike of disagreeing with people, especially when you uh, add in teams that have hierarchies, right? So if you're the leader and I'm the junior, and you're like, "This is this is right," right? Ugh, okay, maybe right, but I'm a lot less likely to say no and and challenge you than if you're like, "Where am I wrong?" That's a much more powerful question in my mind because it gives me the space to answer it differently really great example of this i had a podcast guest on recently diane chadwick jones who's the former vp of uh, of performance for bp the oil and gas company and she would talk about going out to visit some of these folks on oil rigs you know really tough guys who are working really hard and she'd come in and ask them what's your biggest problem and they'd be like i don't have any problems i'm a tough dude i don't have any problems and she'd be like okay well what did you used to have problems with? Like nothing. I've never had problems. I've always been great. You're like, okay, well, it's it's possible. I guess it's probably not true, but it's possible. But then she found this incredible question that seemed to unlock everything. And it's one that I've been stealing and using as well, which is somebody who's like you, but worse, like you, but weaker, like you, but not as good. What do you think they might struggle with? Man. Just an amazing question. And all of a sudden they'd be like, well, I guess if you weren't as good as me, you'd have trouble turning that valve when it's slippery. Oh, okay, cool. Well, we could probably add some grip to that valve, not for you, but for somebody who's not as good as you. And they'd be like, yeah, that might help, you know, but it's all about how do you unlock these different versions of reality that people have? And so things that are framed in a way that circumvents hierarchy. Things that are framed in a way that allows people the space to answer productively. Things that are framed in a way that moves a team forward towards reality. The questions that, that carve you spaces to get into those areas, I
1: think those are the really powerful ones. Yeah, the one in your book that I'm I'm going to steal and borrow is is uh, what am I missing here, team? I think that's so important with creating self awareness because you're going to have blind spots, especially in your world. You're going to have high pressure situations. You might miss something. And in mm-hmm. the book, yeah, what am what am I missing here, team? It gives them an opportunity to say, oh, he probably thinks he's missing something. You know, it's not like, hey, I'm not missing mm-hmm. anything, right? What am I missing? It's a very different way to go about it. I really like that.
0: We did that last night. We had an example of that. We yeah. had. Um, a person who was moved from one area to a more serious area, and, and it, the story didn't make sense. There was something that, that wasn't quite working out, and I didn't understand why this person was in the serious area, and we have only limited resources. So our initial instinct was to move them back to a less serious area. But before we did that, we acknowledged the fact that they were probably brought here for some reason, and maybe we don't understand that reason. So we were able to go out to the, to the other space and I'm intentionally being a little vague here and I'm sorry about that, but to go out to the other space and find the person that had decided to up triage, to move them to the higher area and be like, Hey, I'm not sure I see the same universe as you do. What did you see that made you do this that I don't? And they were able to explain their logic and be like, well, this is what they told me. And this is what I was worried about. Sure enough, they told us something totally different. And so we were able to sort of uh, synthesize a better version of reality by combining these two things. But if we hadn't done that, if we hadn't thought ahead and been like, well, how are we likely to make a mistake here? And what can we do to mitigate that? Right? What systems can we put in place? How do we ask better questions around giving the, the whole picture?
1: We might've missed that other fact. And it's important the way that you do it because for you every second matters every every minute matters and so if you went into that you know charging head full of steam and it was more of a yelling match, not only are you wasting time but we're also not being productive here and I think that's kind of what you're cultivating here is let's get to questions that not only not only decrease the amount of time we have to spend working on them, but let's get something that is productive
0: you know it's actually it's actually slightly more subtle and uh and complicated than that. Because you're right. In some in some moments, every second matters. Mm-hmm. And the way that you're communicating in there has to be really clean cut and well oiled. So that's sort of what you'd call high pressure or crisis communication, right? And if we're in a crisis communication mode, we're going to be very short with each other. We're going to say things, we're going to use closed loop communication. We're going to use things that sound to the outside world like orders. We're probably not going to use each other's names unless we know each other well, right? Right. If I'm the pharmacist and you're the head ER doctor, you're likely going to point at me and go, pharmacist, I need this. And I will be like, copy that preparing, right? That's not a thing you would normally do in the street or in the universe. It's very impolite in a lot of ways. So we have this crisis communication mode. And then we think about um, the boundaries. Hey, team, we're going in a crisis communication mode. Hey, team, we're out of crisis communication mode. But what I did last night... uh, asking, what do you see that I don't? In that sense, that wasn't crisis communication mode. The seconds did not matter then. I actually had plenty of time to walk to this other space, sit down and be like, hey, what did you think here? But there's two things that are important about that. One is that even in the emergency department, not everything is an emergency. We talked about that a little bit at the beginning, but that's a really important mantra because if it's true for us, it's probably true for you wherever you are. Not everything in this emergency. You can't treat everything like an emergency. Otherwise, bad things happen right? You have to find the, the guitar string or the, there's the Buddhist story about the sitar player, right? You have to tune the string, not too tight and not too loose. That's how you get the right note out of it. If it's too tight, it breaks. If it's too loose, you don't get music. You have to tune it the right way. Not everything's a crisis. So when it's not a crisis, what do you do? Well, one of the biggest things you're doing as a leader there is you're building the team. You're building the culture, all right? And every action you do creates culture. So if you go into that room and you're like, what the what? You were so dumb. Why did you put that person there? Okay, they're going to answer you, but they're also going to remember that in a couple of weeks when that other maybe actually sick patient comes up, right? So you're investing in the future of your team. You're saying, hey, nobody knows everything. I want you to help me understand what you saw that I didn't. And let's create a universe where we're able to talk to each other about this. This is great. Thanks for teaching me. I appreciate you seeing something different. Cool. We're going to go on and build, and then in two or three weeks, when something happens, and you need that person in that part of the team to be in crisis mode, and you're like, "Let's go!" You know, they're running through their their memory bank. Like, oh, yeah, Dan Dan's usually pretty calm. If He says, "Let's go, let's go," and you know, you jump into it. There's a risk of that sounding a little Machiavellian because you're sort of like. Um, nudging people into being a certain thing, but I actually really don't think about it that way at all. I think that you're really investing in your people and in your culture. Um, A friend of mine, uh, Fergus Connolly, has this quote that says, culture coaches when you're not around, right? And I think that's really true is that you're building the person, you're building the universe and the culture that's going to lead when
1: you're not there, when they're like, what should I do, right? Oh, well, this is what we generally do. Cool. Let's go after Mm it. Something that you know it doesn't take long to listen to you to understand and to hear just how calm you are you're just very calm mm-hmm. in the sense that, in the vibe that you bring off and you talk a lot about in the book about being calm and i think whether mm-hmm. you are an er doctor a personal trainer or a mailman being calm in chaos is a skill i think that is so powerful sure. and in your in your book you say logistically capitalizing on calm moments in the midst of complex emergencies involves identifying existing moments of calm during a case and purposely training to generate new ones How do you stay calm in the chaos i'd love to dive into this because i think i just think it's a powerful skill that some people really have a hard time with
0: yeah um i think the first thing is that it is a skill and i think that's actually kind of revolutionary to say in some ways right a lot of us grow up thinking that being calm under pressure is a character trait you're like oh there's johnny johnny's really calm you know or there's Johnny. Johnny is a total spaz and isn't, you know, isn't able to stay calm Or you know, Johnny falls apart under pressure. <clears throat> that creates a very fixed mindset thing, right? And if you look at like the work of like Carol Dweck and the the fixed versus growth mindset, I, I think it's a really important distinction to make to be like, hey, you actually can get better at this, right? Um, um man, I'm blanking on her name. Uh she wrote the upside of stress wonderful, wonderful book. Totally blanking on her name. I'm sorry if you're listening to this, I haven't had enough coffee this morning. Uh, But uh, out of Stanford, um, just really, really amazing book that looks at essentially, you, you could think about it like mapping the growth mindset onto stress and pressure. And it basically the punchline is, hey, you can actually respond to stress and pressure differently than what you've done before. And that's a radical thing to say, right? Because it tells you, you have control over some of that. Sometimes it's really hard to hear because, wow, if I have control, what have I been doing? Right? And it's a little damning in some sense of some of your actions. So it, it's uncomfortable to, to feel that, but it's a, it's a start. It's a foundation to move forward with it. <clears throat> so if you have that, then how do you practice it? How do you get better at it? And I don't think there's a magic bullet here. Uh, I do think that it involves a really strong self-reflection practice and getting into some ideas around, you know, mixing the neuroscience of how do we think the brain and the body works on average, some deep personal investigation of how do I work when I respond to stressful situations, and then getting curious enough to run some experiments. What would happen if I blah, 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 right? And that loop, You know, which you can think about that as the Eric Rice build, measure, learn loop, uh, from the lean startup, or you can think about that as anything else. But the idea is still you're going to figure out what's going on and you're going to start running some experiments and see if it gets any better. Over time, that will start loosening the yoke that pressure and stress has on you. Um, and it allows you to, uh, to find yourself more comfortable in situations that would stress you out outrageously when you were first starting i um uh i play jujitsu i'm not particularly great at it but i love it and there's a real parallel in there to jujitsu which is that when you start you're in these positions and you freak out pretty universally you freak out and you start ah, you know sort of like reacting very badly to it and over time and and repetitions you start learning actually my best technique here to get out of this space is to stay calm and think through what's happening and then move when i need to move right like a very subtle, um, parsimony of action and applying force where it's most useful and leverage points as opposed to in general. So what's the mental counterpart to that? And how do you train that? Uh, I think one answer is starting to ask yourself, is this really an emergency, right? Because a lot of things that feel like an emergency, like we talked about, aren't so, you know, can you think about it? Can you stay in the pocket for just a second? And like, please, if there is a, you know, fiery meteor hurling towards you. Do not ask if this is an emergency, get the F out of the way. (laughs) Right. But short of that, like think to yourself for a second, be like, well, uh, you know, what did it, that crazy guy, Dan saying? Well, okay. Uncertainty, impact, pressure, complexity, liminality. Does it have some of those features or does it just sort of seem like it has some of those features? Right away, you're going to find a lot of stuff that feels like an emergency, but probably isn't. And a shorthand for all of that, because it's a lot to remember, is the question, am I forced to act right now? Am I forced to act? And I'm forced to act because there's a meteor hurling at me and I got to get out of the way. Or I'm forced to act because scientists predict there will be a meteor hurling at this exact spot in two minutes. Okay, well... There's nothing between the next two minutes that's going to change that reality. So I'm actually pretty much already forced to act, to to adjust for that incoming. I'm not forced to act necessarily if there's a 1.0% chance of a meteor striking somewhere near me within the next 100 million years. Okay, you can stress out about that, but is it doing you any good? Are you forced to act? Right. And understanding that dynamic is a challenge. And you can call it wrong sometimes on either side. So again, please be careful about meteors, I think is the punchline of this entire podcast. But start thinking to yourself, is this really an emergency?
1: That's a great first way to calm yourself down because you're going to find stuff that isn't. Talk to me about sang, sang, froid, sang, froid, sang, froid. Okay. So, what is it? One more time. Song foie. Song foie. Tell me about that. Yeah. Song foie, Um
0: a French word, an amalgamation of uh, song and foie. So, song is blood and foie is cold. So, literally, it means cold blooded. Um, but, uh, sort of, what it actually means is the characteristic of remaining calm in the face of danger or pressure. It's a shorthand for the skill that we're describing. Uh, although, interestingly, it tends to be used as more of a character trait. Um, except for there's this great quote that apparently a bit apocryphal, but apparently from Napoleon talking about his troops that said, uh, panic must be trained out and sang foi instilled. The idea that through training, you can develop the sense of remaining calm under pressure. So I really, I really love that. Um, but it's a great shorthand for the sense that you can choose how you respond even to overwhelming chaos. Right. And the, um, the image you get here is, you know, the, Wildland firefighter holding the line when the fire comes towards them because they know they're able to deploy countermeasures and skill sets. You know, the frontline, uh, paramedic racing to save a kid despite all of the chaos surrounding them. A lot of our folks in the military holding a line and holding a position to treat their wounded under active fire, right? This is all sang froid that we talk about. Um, it starts with small things. It starts with. Maintaining your calm in the face of a spilled cup of coffee, right? Because how you do the small things is how you do the big things, and it starts with training it in those moments. So we have a bunch of song foix stickers out of the Emergency Mind Project, and we have um, now a bunch of our interns, our our, our junior doctors, uh, carry those on their coffee mugs because of this, right? Because we want to start thinking about how do we do the small stuff to get the big stuff starting to come in, right? And we know if we get them this idea of what song is at the beginning, we help them train it. We help them grow. They're going to build that over time and start teaching that to the teams around them. And like you said, it's contagious, right? Panic is contagious. And so is song. We
1: talked a couple of times on other podcasts about checking your own pulse when you're on shift. Why do you do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You know.
0: So I'll answer why I do that, but I think what's slightly a more important question is what is the type of thing that that is, and why would you do it, right? Because it's less important that you check your pulse, and more important about sort of the underlying structure, and that's that it's it's an anchor movement, right? It's a movement that helps you get into a certain mental and physiological state, and um, uh, one of the ways that we build sang froid and build coolness under pressure. Is by consciously choosing to, and by imagining ourselves like what we want to be—the the ice cold, you know, sort of like very cool person under pressure. And I, I have this image for me of um, uh, when I was a junior doctor, looking at my one of my senior doctors, and watching this person do things that I thought were inhuman. And I was like, "How?" Not in a bad way, inhumanly amazing. I was like, "How in the world are you doing that?" I don't understand. I don't understand. But I knew that if that guy could do it, then I could do it. And so I carried that image of, of him. And I still think about him sometimes. Um, and, uh, you know, I carry that image of him doing that under pressure. And I'm like, okay, well, how could I be like that? Well, if I want to be like that, what's my reminder to be like that? And anchor movements are a great physical reminder of that. Um, so some people clap their hands before a case. Some people clench their feet and release them. Um, you you just have to look at, you know, how people shoot free throws in clutch moments of basketball games to see a great number of anchor movements and rituals and all sorts of stuff that gets in there. To me, one of them is checking my pulse. And I, um, I use that because. Most importantly, because I picked it ahead of time. That's honestly the biggest answer is you pick something and you stick with it and you find something that feels like it works for you. I like this one personally because it's one of the first things I learned in medicine. And it reminds me of how far I've come. Reminds me of all the skill that I have to bring to bear. I have all this stuff that I've learned and I'm going to try to take that. uh, I'm going to try to take everything that humanity has figured out and dump it into the point of the spear into this patient. And it's a good reminder of how, how much of that I do understand how many tools I have at my disposal. It also is a reminder that I, like this person coming in, don't know how many heartbeats they have left, but I get to choose what I'm going to do with these right now. And my choice is to be the best version of Dan Dworkas that I can be. So, okay, what does it take to make that choice? Right? All right, let's get up and do it. And the third thing, and and this is really less about, um, I guess when when I first started, I, I chose uh, taking my pulse because you can hide it, and I didn't want my team to know I was stressed. I actually take the opposite stance on that now, and when I do it, I tend to do it sort of like you know up in the air so everybody can see me doing it. Because now at the leadership level that I am, I want my team to see that. I want my team to know it's okay to feel that, and I want my team to know that that we're going to get through it anyway. There are times when that's a lot harder to do, especially as a junior leader who's first taking command. I don't think one is right and one is wrong. It's just an evolution of purpose and and function. Um, Yeah. And then I guess the last thing I would say is that for any anchor movement to like super nerd out here for a second, right? The dynamic coefficient of friction is always less than the static coefficient of friction, meaning that objects in motion tend to stay in motion. And sometimes the hardest thing is to take the first step. And if you physically move, right? And this is a default that I always teach my, my doctors, my residents. If you don't know what to do, and it's safe to do this, step towards the patient. Just step towards the patient, right? You are moving towards the problem set because that is 99% of the time better than moving away from it. If the patient is swinging and has a knife, that is maybe not the right answer. But generally speaking, if you don't know what's going on, move towards the problem. Sort wow. of like, um, you know, you think about like Jocko Willick's default aggressive, right? A, a very similar standpoint to that. Like if you don't know what to do, go forward. I think that's I think there's a lot
1: of truth in that. And anchor movements are a great simple way to start that. That's so cool, man. As a mental performance coach, one of the things I teach Dan is the is the release routine. And it looks different mm-hmm. for all my athletes, but basically it's the same idea. You just you just struck out or just something bad just happened. We're trying to bounce back because I believe mm-hmm. the best best athletes and the best professionals and the, just the best people in the world are the people that can go from, you know, a, a bad play into a good play. Cause I think it's, it's the bounce that counts is what I say. So I think mm. what I do is I, I have them visualize. So find something on the field court or platform. And ideally it's something that's above their chest because it forces them mm-hmm. to look up, which creates some body True. language. Then we get a breath involved, which uh, hopefully is deep through the the nose, out through the mouth. And then the third thing is either an action or a trigger word. So for athletes, Mm -hmm. like one of my soccer players says, next play. And it's just mm-hmm. this release, this flush of like, okay, I'm on to the next thing. And I think though, like you said, the structure is the most important part. It's what what, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to come up with your routine. What works for you? It might right. The pulse thing might work for you, but it might not work for somebody else. But sure. it sounds like it, it's kind of the same thing. It brings you back in the present moment and maybe helps to flush whatever was in the past. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I'm curious, do you talk, talk to your folks about finding horizontals, finding horizons? Tell me more. So there's some there's some um, really interesting stuff out there. And some of this comes from uh, Huberman Labs and some of this comes from mm-hmm. a bunch of other folks, uh, but basically it's the idea, um, uh, Rachel uh, Vickery on my podcast um, uh, talks about this. And it's basically the idea that when you look at, like we are fairly hardwired to find peace in empty horizons you just think about this, like this is a little bit hand wavy and explanatory. So my apologies, to the neuroscientists in the crowd, but you you go back and you think about like as a human hunter gatherer, if you could see the entire horizon and there were no predators on it, then you had a feeling of relative safety because there weren't that many things that could come from the horizon to you fast enough to cause a problem without you seeing it. So when we see wide horizons and specifically when we think about our peripheral vision sets, we tend to activate the parasympathetic nervous system as a result. So there's some research and some logic that when you see horizons, you calm yourself down. Um, the default uh, node, the default node network, default pattern network—I forget that. I'm still not quite through the cup of coffee yet. But the default node network talks about this idea that you're you're activating the parts of your brain that are the cool down parts and the and the release parts by finding those horizons. So an interesting experiment and i don't have the data to back this up although i'd love to figure this out is the difference between looking at anything in the field and looking at a horizontal line on the field because mm-hmm. there's if you can expand your vision to the periphery you're likely to trigger more of your parasympathetic system and slow yourself down a little bit for that
1: release if where you are is too fast and if what you want to do is get slightly slower cool i'm going to take that i'm going to work on that I think yeah. that kind of dovetails also into, we kind of are getting into visualization and that's a big part of mm-hmm. mental performance coaching is the mental imagery pregame. Where does, where does visualization fit in, in your profession? Mm, everywhere, man.
0: Everywhere. Um, it's big. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about simulation and, and the access to a high fidelity sim lab. Well, you know, you have a giant sim lab that you're carrying around above your shoulders all the time. Um, And it's just such a useful, amazing piece of what you do. So we train visualization for all of our doctors and we train it on a variety of circumstances. Um, We train um, longer scale, more complex visualizations when we're learning new roles. So if your role, for instance, is running a trauma, right? You're going from being an operator on the side to the leader at the foot of the bed, very big mental shift. You run that in your mind countless numbers of times before you run it on a patient. Often you run it in your mind a bunch of times, both before and after you run it on a simulated case, right? You're like, okay, here's what I think is going to happen. I'm going to run it in my head. Great. I'm going to walk through the drill. Okay. I'm going to come back. I'm going to run it in my head again. Okay. Back to the drill. Okay. Back to my head. And we also run it in really quick moments to sort of foresee problems and things that we might we might choke on, uh, or the patient might choke on is probably a better way to say it. Um, so, you know, we talked in the beginning about, okay, you've got a few minutes to spin up. Can you and your team get together and try to figure out what the incoming problems are? Um, right. So, uh, hey, geez, you know, we think this is happening, but oh man, that's right. The elevator between here and the surgery suites is shut down today. What's our backup plan for how to get through there if this person needs to be rapidly taking a theater? All right. Well, all right, let's, let's through sort of that. Right. And that's sort of visualizing the future a bit about that. That gets really fascinatingly into things like pre-mortem exercises, or what Gary Klein would talk about um, when he talks about like the power of foresight that experts have, right? And, and that these are these you can almost call them micro visualizations, right? You're, you're looking just a few moments in the future and you're trying to see what happens versus these larger scale, richer simulations where you're you're really trying to press on what parts you don't
1: understand and learn from them. Both have their place. Both are incredibly useful. Uh, very different skill sets. Do you recommend your um, you know your junior doctors to do this when they're at home is this something you you recommend when you're out of the space or is it like hey when when, when you work on this I want it to be here in the in the hospital
0: so yes is the answer um, and I think that one of the things one of the things that we know is that there's a difference between visualizing uh, Know, did, you, did you watch Star Trek? No, sorry. Never? You never watch Star <laughs> Trek? Oh, man. All right. You should go watch Star Trek. Pretty good. <laughs> uh, but uh, I used to love it as a kid. But they've got this thing called the, uh, what is it? The holodeck or something, which is like a, a a simulation program that they can walk into. And they walk into it and it's just this bare bones room with like some lines on the walls. And then it can create whatever you want in full detail. So often when we start visualizing, most of us start visualizing in the mental equivalent of a holodeck it's just a bare room and so if i ask you to visualize doing a skill like okay we're going to work on your um i don't know i mean in jujitsu i'd say we would work on a kimura but i'm not sure enough of people train jujitsu to understand what i'm talking about so let's use i don't know uh the football so you're gonna kick a three point you're gonna kick a field goal right three point come on man not enough coffee you're gonna kick a field goal and you're going to think about what that looks like. Well, the first time you're visualizing that, you might run it through in your head. And the only thing you actually see in your mind's eye is a foot kicking the football. Okay. Or maybe if you're better skilled at it, you're visualized. Okay. Whatever your mantra is, all right. You know, head in a position, hip in a position, knee in a position, whatever it is. I don't know how to kick a field goal. So I'm not going to say the things because I got no idea, but whatever it is that your your mental chain you're going through and you're going to visualize that. Then when you get better at it, you're going to put in more detail. Well, all right, what's it going to feel like? What's the weather temperature going to be, right? What's the uh, opponents going to do? What are are the fans going to sound like? What are the different images going to be that I'm going to see? What am I likely to encounter? And you get more and more detailed and you run it more and more in these circumstances that are more like real life. They're much richer to this. There was a team that did this recently for field goal kickers, and I'm I don't have the reference for you. I'm sorry. But they actually had their kicker visualize the insides of different stadiums with different sounds of fans that were accurate to that stadium. And they really created this rich environment for them to visualize. And I think they actually played sounds from different stadiums for him in order to get a sense of what was going on. But even if you don't have that. So our version of that is um when you're moving from uh, PGY1 to PGY2, so you're finishing your intern year and you're starting your second year out of four years of ER training. That it, your second year at the place that I work is the first year that you're in the hardcore resuscitation area. One of the things you have to do uh, is be prepared to put a chest tube in, which is a large bore tube that goes into the chest through the ribs to drain out uh, life-threatening amounts of blood or air. Pretty complicated mm-hmm. system. Um, it's actually not, honestly. You just cut a hole in the chest and there you go, but it's more complicated than that. Uh, not medical advice. <laughs> um, but. <laughs> uh one of the challenges is understanding the difference between doing that on a um you know sometimes you just get like a, a a side of ribs and you practice on it uh or if you have access there's certain mannequins that do it or you know we use cadaver labs right we use recently deceased folks who have donated their bodies to science and medicine to practice these kind of techniques um we're very grateful and lucky to have that opportunity because getting to practice it saves real lives later on down the line or saves lives down the line. The, the real there is a fascinating metaphysical question that we can we can let go of for a second. But um so we have to we have to be able to do it. So maybe we've trained in practice, we've opened the kit, we've we've practiced the thing, we have visualized ourselves doing it. And one of the things I try to do for folks, as they're just finishing the first year and they're just about to flip the line into the second to be to be promoted, is I take them into the rooms where they're actually going to do it. Find an empty room. We say, okay, where are you going to be standing? What's it going to look like? What are your feet going to do? Where are the people going to be around you? Okay. Are you right-handed or left-handed? Where are you going to stand in relation to the patient's arm? And they realize, oh, I hadn't I hadn't really baked in this piece of it. And you try to get it as rich and as detailed as possible. Then once they've done that a bunch, we actually use the sharp or fuzziness of a thing to key off of learning, right? Um, and this came from uh, Kristen Allen, who was an absolute world champion gymnast who came on the podcast. And she described when she was practicing her tumbling routines mentally, um, she would look for the moment when something became a little fuzzy or when it switched from first-person visualization to third-person visualization. And those were the moments that she would go train and press on. Because she's like, my mind's doing something in there and I might not even know what it is. But when we go from sharp, sharp, sharp to, uh, then I'm going to reach for this tool and I don't know what it looks like. I'm going to press on that. I'm going to go over train
1: that. Yeah. Separation is in the preparation. I think that you know, I played college football. One of the things we did before each game was we'd go out to the field and coach would give us anywhere from 10 to 20. If some people wanted more, it'd be like 30 minutes walking the field mm-hmm. and some people would do yeah. cuts and then some people would literally, you know, they'd have their own routine. Some people would walk to each corner, but it's just kind of visualizing, getting a sense of where for road games specifically, we haven't mm-hmm. been here before. Yeah. Let's get as acclimated as we can. Kind of seems like a semi process for you guys. If you haven't been in this room yet, let's put yourself in the situation as close as we can before uh, reality hits. Yeah.
0: I mean, yes. Um, the difference is, and I was talking to uh, um, Andrew Murray, one of the heads of international development for the NBA the other day, and we, we were riffing a little bit on the differences between basketball and emergency medicine, um, you know, as one does. And he was <laughs> like, you know, for me, like, you know, when you've got the ball, you're going to have to run, pass, shoot, You're going to go on a court that's a certain size and try to hit a basket that's a certain height. And you're going to face between one and five defenders. Okay. Emergency medicine is like, yeah, you don't know, man. Maybe there's 13 defenders, a shark with lasers on it, six robots, and like, uh, I don't know, a tripwire? Like, who knows? And, you know, the ball suddenly weighs a thousand pounds and there's a million, like you usually have no idea what's coming in. And like, like, that's an exaggeration. And that's an exaggeration that leads us into the same line of inappropriate thought that is everything is an emergency. So I have to be very careful when I say that I'm I'm making a point to be funny. Like there is bounded uncertainty most of the time, but then sometimes there is unbounded uncertainty. And the difference between those two is really important. So, so yeah, whenever possible, I get my team in the room, they're going to play in and they're going to look at the tools they're going to use, and they're going to drill down into everything. But I cannot make them dependent on that because sometimes they have to run a cardiac arrest in a bathroom. How do you get the person out from behind the toilet, (laughs) right? Like real life problem set, right? Like all of the stuff in the world doesn't work unless you can deliver it to that patient. And, And so you got to figure out the little details of that. You got to start problem solving these things that don't seem like they have any, you know, like, Medicine has this reputation of being this like very grand, very, you know, like whatever sort of fancy thing. But a lot of times it's like, can I roll that patient to the left enough to access this thing I need? Yes or no. And my problem set is really roll them to the left. That's actually more important than all of the science that we've figured out as humans for that person in that moment. So understanding the difference between deep diving as much as possible into the universe that you're going to play. Can you walk the field and walk it as much as you can? Because it matters but not becoming dependent on that.
1: It's a hard line to to balance. So we keep talking about this separation and the preparation. I I can only imagine, I'm so curious, Dan, there's got to be this moment of, and I think you posted about this before, the walk into the hospital or the drive Mm -hmm. to the hospital. You're kind of getting your mind ready. Walk me through what were some key things to help you have a successful shift as you prepare, not only the day before, years before, but literally you're walking in. And then also I'd love to hear when you're driving home, I mean, you're coming mm-hmm. home. You're turning off the switch. You're 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 not you're not 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 any longer in a high pressure situation. How do you flip the switch? So, how do you flip the switch on? How do you flip the switch off when you're by yourself, either in the car or in the parking lot or walking in? Yeah, I, th- I think we're we're talking about
0: um, we're talking about uh, ritual here in some sense, right? We're talking about storytelling. We're talking about the stuff that it takes to get us. Uh, across a threshold into a different space, and and to become a different person, and to come back and forth from that, right? In the words of uh, my friend and mentor Preston Klein, we're talking about leaving. We're talking about transitioning between the ordinary world and the extraordinary world. Yes, we're yes. going back and forth between those. Absolutely. Um, and that's a transition, whether or not you're an ER doctor. If you are a high performer, you face that transition. If it's, you know, it's the the first snap of a game, it's the you know the first whistle, it's the opening of something, right? You're crossing this threshold. So, um, there's a bunch in there. I, one of the memories that really stands out to me about this is I'm at Mass General, where I did a lot of my training, uh, and I there's this big this long hallway that's covered in brick that leads into one of the doors of the er it's not the only way in but it's one of the ways in and you know everything in mass general at least in this for the for the states is incredibly old so it looks like this brick has been there forever and it probably hasn't right but it looks like it's been there forever and i remember walking down because it led into our ultra serious resuscitation area and it was one of the first times i was working there and i was so nervous Man, I trained so hard to be in that space and be part of that team, but I knew in when I walked through those doors, people's lives would depend on what I was doing. Like not totally on me. I had a great team, there was all sorts of stuff and I could tell myself all that, but at the end of the day, I would do things that would drastically influence whether somebody lived or died and have ripple effects through their lives and the lives of their community.
1: So and like I was that just feeling that weight.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was feeling that weight. And I was like, what do I do? right? I'm standing at, uh, how am I going to, what am I going to do to psych up for this? And I knew I was imperfect. I was just training. I didn't have all the answers. I knew I couldn't fix everything and I knew I wouldn't succeed at everything I touched. So how do you balance that? How do you know you're going to walk into a space where people are going to suffer because you're not good enough yet? What do you do? But you know, you need to get better because the integral of your career and your life is going to be a positive for the community and for the world. And I firmly believe that, right? The world will be a better place for me having done this work. That's the thing I keep in the front of my mind for all of it. So I was like, well, what am I going to do? How am I going to, what am I going to do to psych myself up for this and 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 at least hit the ground as stable as I can and go from there? And I I had a, a memory of part of the uh, Hippocratic Oath, which is you know all the doctors take. And I don't know if you've ever read the Hippocratic Oath. It's actually kind of weird, and I don't like a lot of it. it it's not quite what it, it's made out to be on movies, but there is one part of it that I really like, which says, into whatever house I enter, may it be for the good of the people inside. or may be for the good of the people within, actually. Into whatever house I enter, may it be for the good of the people within. Okay. That is a commitment to saying, I don't know if I can fix everything, but I'm going to go into this space and I'm going to bring the best I have, and it's going to be for the benefit of those people. And everything I'm going to do is going to be for the benefit of those people. Right? All right. Well, if I believe that, then that's really what I'm going to do. Then this door I'm about to cross isn't the door to the ER, it's the door to a house. And my job is to make it for the good of the people that are inside. And so I got in the habit every time i walked down that one brick hallway i would look at the brick i would touch the brick and i would say to myself when i enter this house it will be for the good of the people within and i probably looked like a little bit of a crazy person and that's okay right that's what i needed to do to to make that happen and i would walk down that hallway and make it happen and over time that became baked in such that now typically wherever i work i try to find a hallway that leads to it (laughs) And and I visualize that same red brick hallway every time I walk into it. Did it last night, right? A different hallway, not a lot of brick in this place, but that's okay, right? You still do it. And whatever you carry with you at the start of that hallway, you know, by the end of it, that you're going to be entering a house for the good of the people within. And whether that's your teammates on a field or the patients in an ER or, you know, your unit out on deployment, you're going to go from a, where there's everything to be where there's nothing but
1: that space and that mission. Oh man, I um, love that. I love that. What, yeah. what about the what about when you leave? Same thing, different.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to. I sometimes walk through the same hallway. Sometimes I don't. Um, a lot of times, uh, and I'll tell you that that in a way, coming home is a much more challenging problem set than going into a space. Okay, right? we are des- we are designed to move forward towards problems. Um, we are surrounded by people who are working problems. We have a clarity of purpose, mission and, uh, intensity that surrounds us. And then we leave that and we still have to do the laundry. And that's sometimes so freaking hard. You know, you walk out of a space and you're covered in blood and you don't know whose blood it is because so many people, you know, so many things happen to that day. And I have all these images of walking home, looking at my shoes, being like, I don't know whose blood that is, right? And you go back and then all of a sudden you walk into your house and like, like now I have to cook dinner? How do I do this? How do I do the normal things, right? We don't train on how to do that. We visualize how to go forward. We very rarely visualize how to come home. And we see that reflected in the experiences of our brothers and sisters in the military, The challenges of coming home, because there's not the same culture, there's not the same purpose, because you've been through a space, you've been through something that is unique and most humans don't go through. And then you come back to a space where maybe your skills aren't celebrated. Maybe you've done things that are hard that you're not sure how to handle. The people that want to talk to you, that want to support you, they haven't seen those things. They don't speak your language. They don't know how to handle that. Um... (laughs) <laughs> I, had, I had uh i had one ex-girlfriend stop me in the middle of um stop me in the middle of saying something and be like i didn't sign up to hear this i didn't sign up to hear this and i was like true the relationship didn't last very long after that but <laughs> um but uh it's true she actually hadn't signed up to hear that right and it's a thing that's hard to remember like so com- coming home is a challenge um, uh, you know, I think there's so much in there about, about storytelling and about the stories we tell ourselves. And, um, my friend and mentor, Claire, you know, Claire talks about this all the time when we talk about storytelling. Um, and you know, so, so, so what do you do with all this? Right. Cause I'm, I'm drifting a little bit cause this is clearly an emotional issue for me still that I, that I still work on. All right. So let's, let's wrap some structure around it. So first, uh, back to this idea of do no harm, right? You don't make it worse. It's easy to make it worse. Okay, so at some level, if the only thing you can do when you're coming home is not pour gas on a fire, then don't pour gas on a fire. And sometimes that's all you get. All you get is, I'm going to not have a drink. That's it. I'm going to not yell at people around me. That's it. Maybe they don't understand why I'm being standoffish. Maybe they don't understand why I can't come out to a party and talk to them about what's happening or tell them or answer the question, how was your day? Because all I see when I answer that question is horror, right? Okay, well, I'm just not going to pour gas on it. Great. That's a good start. Because probably when you wake up the next morning and you've drank some coffee, got a workout in and sat down and thought for a few minutes, probably the world's going to look better than it does right now and recognizing that difference between what you're feeling in that moment and sort of what the underlying reality is, is a big piece of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Then what else can you do? Well, understanding that there are waves of processing. So there's some things you got to process right in the moment. You got to start processing. There's some things that it takes a little bit of cooking before they're ready to eat, right? Before they're ready to process and whatever you feel in that first moment, it's okay that you feel that, but that doesn't have to be your final answer. Right. And sometimes you know that I'm going to feel this. It's going to happen, especially if you have experience with it. It always happens. Okay. Cool. In a couple of days, I'm going to revisit it and really start digging in. Um, we had a uh, very young child come in in cardiac arrest that we weren't able to save not too long ago. And, um, you know, to put it mildly, you, you feel things when a child dies. And those things are not easy to feel. And so you have to know that you're going to feel them. You have to feel them. And then you have to take a few days and come back and think about it again. Because you might not get the right set of answers in that first place. You might not be able to ask the intelligent questions. You might not be able to really learn from it what you need to for the next child that comes in. So you got to have time and space to process that um i think it's also important to recognize that that you know you're just a giant bag of neurochemistry (laughs) like we all are right you're just this this bag of chemicals walking around doing stuff and even though experience feels so real a lot of it is actually mediated by small little molecules that are floating back in a soup in your head Mm -hmm. so if you have not slept those molecules are unhappy Incredibly accurate science right there, right? Unhappy molecules floating around in a bag of chemicals that's producing weird thoughts, and those thoughts are not gonna be pleasant. Writing that down. are not gonna do a good job of it, right? So I try to not believe whatever I think after a night shift, unless I have to, because I know I'm not as smart. I haven't slept, I haven't restored the chemical balance. I have to get my neurochemistry in order in order to do good thinking and good things. So a lot of my, how do I come home process, Recognizing the boundaries where I'm likely to make mistakes, not pouring gas in the fire and doing the stuff I that I know it will take to get my neurochemistry back in working order. Um, and as much as possible, being honest and open with the people in my lives about that. Saying things like, I might be really upset when I come home from this kind of thing. We both have to be okay with that. I'm going to take some time and I'm going to come back and I'm going to try not to pour gas on it and I'm going to do the best I can. You know, but I'm an imperfect human doing a thing imperfectly um, and I'm still learning how to do that. Yeah.
1: therapy is also super helpful and I highly recommend it Good point okay, I can't even imagine you know some of the things that you see Dan and i'm just I'm just curious out of my own self here when you you know you talk about the child that you weren't able to resuscitate and I'm sure you see death on a very regular basis, mm. how does one I mean just to get real with me, how does one move on from something like that? how do I mean what What do you do to help yourself become more clear-minded the next time you walk in how does it affect you and then i'd also like to hear too how do you go about delivering bad news maybe it's not death maybe something a little bit lighter but and in triage to that kind of three-step question is how do you go about telling somebody that you know Mm. it is it is suboptimal yeah
0: so few years back i was working with a scribe who uh was in the er with me and was you know they they record everything that happens and they help you write the charts and they help you gather info and they're just awesome awesome people usually in preparation for a career in medicine themselves um and they asked me some version of that question which is how do you how do you handle a patient dying And what I said was that it it always tears a hole in you and it tears the same size hole. It's just that over time you realize you're a much bigger piece of cloth than you thought you were when you started. And I think that to me that's really intimately welded to this concept of never wasting suffering. right? The idea that I cannot uh, save everybody either from death or suffering. I don't have that power. No human does. Um, but what I can commit to my patients and my team and to myself, honestly, is that I will not waste that suffering. I will transform it into fuel to make me and my community better. And that actually is mostly within my control. So. Part of my vision of honoring a person when they pass or honoring a person or a family when they suffer is the commitment that I will and my team will get better because of it. We will break it down and figure out how we could have improved. We will learn from it. We will become better humans for having been through that space. Um, Seneca says a, a gem is polished by friction. So too is a human polished by their trials. And I think that part of my answer to all of this is that the friction of the suffering I will use to make myself and my team better individuals and better groups. Um, there is nothing that's easy about that. Uh, but to me, that's probably the one of the deepest lessons I've learned in my Um, my now 40 years, I just turned 40 last weekend. So my now 40 years of life, uh, happy birthday. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, I'm very conscious of all of the patients that I've had who didn't make it to 40, who didn't get to see their 40th birthday and didn't get to celebrate with, with friends and family. And I'm incredibly lucky. And I think that part of the, the rent I pay on being human,
1: right. Is this idea of never wasting suffering of using what we have to, to get better. Yeah. Go deeper on that, Dan, because I think there's a lot of perspective involved in your job. You get, you get to see some very just dismal things, not only with the, with the victims or or the patients, but you know, there's just a lot of unfortunate events that come your way. How's, how's, how has being an ER doctor changed your perspective in life outside of the ER room?
0: Oh, I I don't even kind of know how to begin answering that question. Right. That's like, how does how does walking change your perspective or like standing upright change your perspective? Like pretty massively, right? Uh, I mean, I, I think that it's, um, you know, when you go up against life or death things, most humans get that a few times in their life. I have been fortunate enough to go up against that multiple, multiple times. And the perspective that comes from that is a deeper gratitude and a deeper appreciation for, for life and for what is around us and an understanding of the, um responsibility to to act on that and with that um it's colored so much of what i've done uh and i think that you know i think it's different for every person and you don't have to do that in order to get into some of those spaces but you do have to think about it mm-hmm. you have to think about death you have to think about life you have to think deeply about why you're here and what you're up to um and, and that's what I would wish for anybody listening to that, that they, that they come out of this and they pause for a moment and whatever else they're doing today, listening to your podcast, right? Whatever they're, they're, they're in the gym, crushing a session, or they're about to go out in the field, or they're about to go out into the, the world and do whatever. Just take a moment and really reflect on like, you know, are you doing it for the good of the people around you? Are you entering that
1: space prepared to give the best that you have? Or what's your, what's your underlying reason in there? Great place to end it, Dan. Nice job, man. Good work. So, the emergency mind—I am writing it off. This book is fantastic, and I by writing it off, I mean I got I got lines under a bunch of the stuff, man. I tore <laughs> I tore this thing up. So, for my listeners, Dan, where can they get the book? Uh,
0: anywhere. Uh, Amazon is probably the easiest, uh, but anywhere, um, and you can find a ton of what we do. Uh, at emergencymind.com, including the book and including our new sort of personal crisis performance analysis, which will get you into a lot of the really interesting habits and actions that really high performers take under pressure. And that's new as of like yesterday. So, Oh,
1: cool. That's on the website? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, dude, I'll check that out. That's awesome. Hey, thanks for taking the time, man. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.